Good evening and welcome. I'm Gillian McIntyre from the Education Department. I say that every time, and I'm sure most of you know by now that I'm Gillian McIntyre from the Education Department, but still. Before we begin, as usual, I would like to thank our sponsors, the Catherine Society, Women Inspired by Catherine the Great, support education programs, including this lecture at the AGO, and we thank them very much indeed. Tonight's lecture is with David Wistow. David works here at the Art Gallery of Ontario and has done for quite some time. In the European department, he's an interpretive programmer, but it will be a very good lecture. <laughs> Please judge it afterwards. David Wistow. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Um, how many of you, by the way, were at my first lecture in this series? Okay, so some of you. You may recognize a few images tonight by way of review. Uh, it'll make the exam at the end of the evening a little bit easier, I expect. Um, we all have family and friends. Many of us have partners of one sort or another. And uh, we know, I think, what, a, what an important role they play in our lives. And this is, of course, as true of Catherine as anyone. And what I wanted to do this evening is look at some of these critical players in her life. I want to begin by, by putting to bed one of the standard notions of Catherine, and that is her promiscuity, because it's somehow related to this, this issue of uh, under discussion tonight. And that is, there's a, there's a great quote by her in one of her thousands of letters, and it says, um, I cannot live a single hour without love. And uh, just to clarify the situation, she doesn't mean sex. She means love in all of its fullness and complexity. And we'll find out a little bit tonight, I think, why she needed the love of the people around her. And I should say they, they do function in two ways, I think, for her. Maybe more, but essentially two ways. One is to give her the support that she needed with the extraordinary responsibility of governing the world's largest uh, land mass. And um, she needed that support all through her life. But secondly, she also needed people around her to help her rule. And we're going to find out that some of these members of her family and some of her friends and some of her lovers play a very public function in, in her reign. So there is a kind of inextricable relationship, I think, between her private life, we'll find out, and her public life. It's impossible to kind of uh, pull them apart. Okay. New equipment. I want to start and be very fair. Five members of her family, five friends, five lovers. Right? That's what we're going to do this evening. The important first member of her family is someone she never met, this gentleman, who is Peter the Great. Absolutely, Peter the Great. He died uh, 20 years before she came to Russia and 37 years before she came to the throne. But there's no question that this man played, as a member of her kind of surrogate family, a more important role than anyone else. Because he raised the bar to a, to a level that she sought to really attain throughout her career. He was, in his own right, a kind of genius. He modernized Russia. These are kind of cliches, but he turned this great, hulking, uh, almost barbaric country towards Europe. It was always called 
opening up a window to the West. He, he revolutionized, essentially, all aspects of Russian life, sometimes almost violently, uh, from, the, from the grandest you know, governmental level down to whether or not you were allowed to wear a beard. Right? Every aspect of Russian culture, the army, the navy, uh, religion, the economy, agriculture, culture, and so on, were profoundly affected by the extraordinary energies um, of this man. And I should say that Catherine uh, refers to Peter the Great in his letters, in her letters, more than any other single individual, which I think is some kind of a sign of what he meant to her. And apparently, she had a ring with his portrait on it and a snuff box. This is one of the snuff boxes in the exhibition, also with an image of him on it. This is him, obviously, on horseback to which she would refer and with which she would confer whenever she wondered what to do. Right? So he was a constant presence in her life, particularly at uh, moments of crisis. And again, what an extraordinary character he is. I don't know whether anybody has ever seen this in the flesh, so to speak. Has anybody seen this thing? It is, uh, it is not Peter stuffed, by the way, but it's as close as you could get. It is a wax model of his body. It sits in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. And since this was taken on my very first trip there in 1978, he's had a change of clothes. He's in red now. Uh, he was six foot eight. He was a, obviously a giant physically, but a giant in, in all senses. And it would make complete sense, again, that Catherine would constantly want to imagine what he would do and refer back to his, um, to his great endeavors, essentially. She wanted to be seen as the natural heir. And we should remember that, of course, Catherine has no Russian blood, and she must do everything within her means to associate with this great predecessor. Of course, he's not an ancestor, literally, but a predecessor. And so much of what we see in the exhibition, actually, is an attempt on Catherine to make this critical uh, link. Perhaps Peter's most outstanding, lasting legacy, of course, is the city of St. Petersburg. Because if you can picture your geography, prior to the reign of Peter the Great, Russia had no access to the Baltic Sea. And it was one of Peter the Great's first and perhaps most significant goals to establish a toehold on the Baltic for reasons of trade, primarily. And to that end, he fought against the Swedes, defeated them, and claimed a piece of almost useless marshland, upon which, of course, he built the city of St. Petersburg in a matter of a few decades with the extraordinary will and power of an autocrat. And so in a matter, literally, of three or four decades, a sophisticated European city emerged, essentially, out of nothing. And here we just get a little sense of what that city looked like in the middle of the 18th century. Rather grand, really, from the start. As I said, Catherine wanted to constantly be making uh, connections back to Peter, and there's one very important piece of political propaganda in the exhibition, this, uh, an image of it here, in which she has herself included in an image with Peter. So just let me show you, for those of you who haven't seen this work yet. Here, of course, is Peter. He's dead. We know that because he's got stars floating around his head. And he's uh, accompanied by Father Time, of course, holding the hourglass. And Father Time is pointing over to, right, dear old, she's everywhere. 
Um, and she's holding, this is Glory, by the way. Glory is holding portrait of Catherine, and Glory is holding a map of the Crimean and the Black Sea in reference to uh, um, both Peter the Great's and Catherine's desires to expand the Russian Empire as if it needed expansion. So uh, Peter, first of all, of course, founded the Russian Navy, and St. Petersburg, you have to remember, is sitting on the Neva River, and it does have access to the Baltic, and he does build a very powerful navy, and here we see bits of it. And in fact, it's not an accident that uh, a good portion of this sort of middle ground is occupied by the Admiralty, which Peter invented and, and clearly had built. And here's a ship in the process of being constructed and so on. What, of course, Catherine wants to say is that she's carrying on this expansion of the Russian Empire, specifically to the south. She wanted access to the Mediterranean. And to that end, she sent her troops uh, south towards the Black Sea, and they spent 10 years, essentially, fighting with the Turks, who just happened to be occupying the critical slices of land she wanted. And eventually, of course, she defeats them and provides this access for the Russian Empire to the Black Sea and ultimately to the Mediterranean. So what we see here, in fact, in detail, are Russian troops with all the uh, um, trophies, essentially, of these Navy victories over the Turks. And I don't know whether you can see, I just checked this today to be sure, these great flags here are Turkish flags, and they have the half crescent, you know, the crescent moon on them. So it's very, very clear what this story is about. It's Catherine bringing these uh, navy trophies uh, to lay at the, at the foot, essentially, of Peter the Great, seen here in this, in this monumental um, equestrian statue. Okay. There's the statue itself. And uh, Exhibit A, by the way, I mean, some of you know that I have this sort of thing about Russian history, so you have to bear with me for a moment. Um, this <laughs> is my version, and it comes from none other than the St. Lawrence Flea Market, which I'm sure some of you visit <laughs> on a regular basis. You never know the kind of treasures you're going to find. A lot better to pay $25 here and not have to drag it home than pay 150 in St. Petersburg, which is about how it works. All right, so I think some of you know this. Catherine commissioned many works of art during her lifetime. None was more important and none meant more to her than this equestrian statue of her predecessor. And it was a, a very astute move on Catherine's part. I think if I'd been in control, I would have simply created a monument to myself. And Catherine went one step further, realizing that it was much more important again to cement this relationship with Peter the Great. I should say, this is the first public monument in Russian history. Very important. And I wondered about that, and I suddenly realized just a few days ago, of course, that the Russian Orthodox Church was essentially the primary patron of art until the 17th and certainly even into the 18th centuries, and public art just simply wasn't allowed. Right? So the, a great, great monument that occupied 12 years of Catherine's life and 12 years of the of the artist uh, Falconet, a Frenchman who was brought to Russia, obviously, to execute this extraordinary um, object. Uh, Falconet came with his, we think, lover. Uh, he was about 50, she was about 18, and what a talented young artist she was. Probably the first female sculptor, essentially, in, in the history of Europe, of ever, any real, real consequence, and what a talent. And apparently, Falconet could not figure out how to depict uh, Peter the Great's head. 
So he passed that rather critical part of the statue over to Marie Anne Colo, and she created this rather spectacular face, which pleased uh, Catherine enormously and solved this very, very long uh, debate and discussion. So by a woman, interesting collaboration. From the outset, Falconet decided that he wanted a rather eccentric base for his statue, and he decided on a stone, and he thought he would put together a, a bunch of stones, essentially, with, with wrought iron, but he quickly realized that the weather in Russia would soon pulverize that stone. And Catherine supported him in his search for what we have in our own land here, and there are actually some of these in Toronto, an erratic. Have you heard of an erratic? is a great stone which the Ice Age has deposited. I think there's one on Cumberland, which the Ice Age didn't leave there. But it is an erratic, and it's a beautiful garden that it's the centerpiece of. So, I mean, they're all over the north, right, all over Muskoka and so on. So they found this great erratic. It was 13 kilometers from St. Petersburg. And the story of how it came and was brought to St. Petersburg made Catherine enormously happy because it proved to be one of the great technological feats of its day. And she did everything, as one would expect she would do as a master of public relations, to broadcast this sort of technological triumph, to bring a rock that was 1,800 tons, 13 kilometers from the woods to the center of St. Petersburg. And there's a whole sequence of images in the exhibition uh, which document this extraordinary process. So here it is at the very beginning, and here it is in, in its... Um, in its process, you can see it was brought in on rails, right, with bronze balls, apparently, sort of proto-ball bearings. Catherine is over here. In the process um, of movement, uh, the, sculpt the sculptors, you know, the assistants are actually chopping away at the rock, right, in order to shape it into its final form. You can see them. And there's a, oh, yeah, this is sort of interesting. I just noticed this today. There's a drummer up here making sure those Russians are actually keeping pace, you know. Okay, Catherine, some of you may know, came from an impoverished and fairly inconsequential German family, uh, Anhalt Zerbst, who's ever heard of that? A very, very poor family. In a sense, part of her story is a Cinderella story because she comes with nothing. She doesn't even have dresses to appear at court in on her first days. But she's clearly plucked from obscurity because uh, of a, an obscure kind of family relationship, and she's meant to marry the heir to the Russian throne, right? Another German teenager, basically. So here she is at the very beginning of her career. She's uh, 16 or 17 years old. She's just married. She's certainly got better clothes uh, than she had when she arrived. Okay. What she encounters, of course, and what completely blows her away is the grandeur of Russia, the great wealth and the great luxury of the city of St. Petersburg, which is still only uh, not even 40 years old, including the Winter Palace, which had just really more or less finished about the time that she arrived. So if you imagine moving from a, pretty much a couple of rooms to something as grand as what you see there, and although we're jumping ahead, I just want to indicate her, eventually Catherine, as the mature woman, lived in apartments just, I think, over to the right here, and uh, above or below... Uh, her current friend, right? And there again, just can you get some sense of what it must have been like for her to suddenly appear in these rather spectacular um, 
interiors. And then, of course, she very quickly would have been taken off to the summer palace of the Empress, which had just finished, uh, the Empress Elizabeth, of course. And here it is, a little, you know, 1,000 feet long. It's incredibly, uh, um, well, vast. And then I think for some of you who, you know, who were here the last time, these are little bits that Catherine the Great herself added on to the palace uh, later in her later in her reign. So Catherine uh, just encountered the most spectacular of interiors, including some of the most beautiful uh, carvings and gilt work and so on. And I just wish in a way that, that mirrors could retain the images that are imprinted upon them, because this mirror would have a few stories to tell. There were a lot of interesting people who looked into that mirror. And I should say that Catherine was brought to Russia um, by the Empress Elizabeth, because Empress Elizabeth, who was the daughter of Peter the Great, had no uh, official heir. She had to bring, first of all, a young man. That's Peter, uh, who would become Peter III. He was a grandson of Peter the Great. And of course, he had to bring, bring, uh, she had to bring Catherine as well. Here, of course, is Elizabeth. And I should say, you know, we've been kind of living with Catherine now for eight or ten months fairly intensely. And we have read a lot of uh, her letters. Of course, she was, you know, an insatiable letter writer and uh, her, you know, her important autobiography and so on. And I tried to bring it, some of this to, to us tonight. This is Catherine's description of this woman, Empress Elizabeth, uh, upon her first encounter, really. Um, it was impossible on seeing her for the first time uh, not to be struck by her beauty. She was a large woman who, in spite of being very stout, was not in the least disfigured by her size. She danced with perfection and had a particular grace in all she did, whether dressed as a man or a woman. So apparently there were a lot of sort of transvestite um, balls, very popular at the time. She had a keen natural intelligence, was of a lively disposition, and indulged in excessive pleasures. I think she was kind at heart. She had a great high-mindedness and much vanity. She wanted to shine and was fond of admiration. Court flatterers succeeded in filling her private life, life with such triviality that her day became a fabric of whims, superstition, and laxity. As she possessed no principles and had no serious matters with which to occupy her mind, her life dwindled into such tedium that in her last year she found nothing better to do than sleep as long as she could. It was not easy to find topics of conversation. One had to avoid mentioning the King of Prussia, Voltaire, illness, death, beautiful women, French manners, uh, scientific matters, and various superstitions. Well, Catherine observed, I think, Elizabeth very carefully from the moment she arrived, and Catherine was very astute, very visually, I think, aware. And there are several components of Elizabeth's life and her personality that Catherine clearly adopted. And one was uh, Elizabeth's very beautiful carriage in the sense of deportment. Everyone speaks about how beautifully this woman moved. Um, there's no, sense, no, no doubt that she was kind of a blonde bombshell. She was incredibly gorgeous. Everybody talked about that. She also moved exceedingly regally, and Catherine adopted this, I think, herself. She also knew that Elizabeth had claimed her throne through a coup d'etat. So Elizabeth, 20 years previously, had mounted a horse, got a, a bunch of guards behind her, and literally led those guards into the Winter Palace to arrest the then reigning monarch. 
So Catherine had a kind of model in front of her when it came time to crafting her own coup d'etat. Elizabeth was excessively promiscuous, excessively, although she did eventually marry in secret a Ukrainian peasant who was very beautiful and had a gorgeous voice. Those were his two, I think, claims to fame. His name was Razumovsky, and some, if any of you are admirers of Beethoven, some descendant of his ended up in Vienna as a major patron of Beethoven, and there's something called the Razumovsky String Quartet. So they became a very distinguished family, finally, but they began their lives as peasants, and thank goodness for the good looks of, of one of them. So um, uh, he, she married one of these characters, this Razumovsky, but that didn't uh, stop her from carrying on with her various affairs, and eventually she was to have a 10-year-long affair with one of the most distinguished men of his entire generation. So Elizabeth was very busy. She, she sometimes actually got the right people right, and brought them in, and, and it was a reign of relative peace and relative prosperity, even though Elizabeth was notoriously lazy and had absolutely no interest in governing whatsoever. Thanks to, uh, essentially, this important lover number two, uh, the Moscow University was founded, an Academy of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg, and so on. So it wasn't a cultural wasteland by any means. And Catherine was obsessed with French culture uh, in all of its manifestations, and you can see her rather spectacular uh, clothes here. She died with somewhere in the neighborhood of 15,000 dresses. She was crazy. She was a clothes horse, I guess is the term. Um, and if any woman was caught looking more beautiful than she in any way, um, watch out because she was very, very violent. And I think she inherited this from, from her own father, Peter the Great, who was also extremely physically violent. As you know, Elizabeth might grab your hair and, and try to pull it out, essentially, if you, she thought your coiffure was more attractive than hers and so on. She had a very, very, the mirror kind of reminded me, she had a very, very hard time dealing with her aging face because she'd been so admired as a, as a young woman. I should say her eyes were brilliant blue and many of the buildings in St. Petersburg from her time were painted blue. And there, was, there were many comments about how this blue was the same blue as the blue of the Empress's eyes. So. The unlucky man who was brought to Russia as Empress Elizabeth's heir was this fellow here who became eventually Emperor Peter III. And, uh, Talking about him in a way and reading about him is just a reminder of how absolutely um, unreliable history is. Because as far as I understand, there are two completely diametrically opposed uh, assessments of this guy. So the first assessment sort of goes like this. And this, is, this is, again, Catherine. I would have loved my... Oh, maybe I'll just backtrack for a second. This poor guy... His mother, he was a grandson of Peter the Great. His mother died when he was three months old. He was raised by tutors, and um, they tied him to tables, they, they starved him, and they beat him. So he didn't start out with all the advantages that you know, you'd want a child to start with. So he ends up as a sort of 14-year-old in Russia, doesn't want to be there, clearly. This is Catherine's description of, of her young husband. I would have loved my new husband if only he had wanted or been able to be lovable. But even on the first days of my marriage, I had a cruel thought about him. I said to myself, if you love that man, you will be the unhappiest creature on earth. Your character needs you to be loved in return. 
this man hardly looks at you. He talks about nothing practically but dolls. And by that, I think she means toy soldiers because he was a mad, mad about the army. And he pays more attention to other women than to you. You're too proud to make a fuss, so keep a tight rein on tenderness you show this man. Think of yourself, madam. This first impression on my waxen heart remained with me, and this thought has never left my head. <clears throat> so she arrived pretty much um, with a feeling in her young mind that, this is a quote, that she would either reign alone or die. She uh, pretty well instantly assessed this man and declared that she would never co-rule with him. The problem from the outset was, of course, they didn't like each other very much. And after seven years of no kids, Empress Elizabeth realized there was a problem. And no one's quite sure what happened, but there is a sense that Elizabeth encouraged the two of them to take lovers. And that's seemingly what happened. And um, the first child born to Catherine the Great um, may or may not be the progeny of this man. No one's quite sure. Okay, so that's Catherine's description, and I should say there are a few other eyewitnesses. Here's another one. Peter had sense, but his education had been totally neglected. He possessed an excellent heart, but he wanted in politeness. He was of a good stature, but ugly and almost deformed. He frequently blushed at the superiority of his wife. He was not capable of making her happy. Hence arose the mutual dislike. And if we can, again, count on Elizabeth... Uh, she's quoted as saying, my nephew is an imbecile, let the devil fetch him. So, I mean, <laughs> she didn't mince words on this subject. Um, so, Catherine was faced with a man that she didn't get along with. Very quickly, their relationship turned into a kind of duel. And, you know, where perhaps we simply divorce today, you have to remember that these two people are fighting over something rather large and that is complete power over this great empire. So clearly these relationships are exceedingly uh, complicated. So that's, that's the Peter, Peter III, which I thought was the legitimate Peter III, and that's Peter III coming out of Catherine the Great's famous autobiography. Now, um, this is an 18th century print of Peter III's favorite estate, which still exists. Uh, and somewhat decrepit, but it still exists uh, you know, on the, on the uh, Gulf of Finland. A rather splendid house. He was a very, very happy man here. In the year 2002, an exhibition took place focusing on Peter III and his reign. And the Peter III that is articulated in that exhibition is completely different than Catherine's Peter III. That is, he's considered to be one of the great modernizers of Russian culture. And in the, the six measly months that he had on the throne of Russia, he revolutionized many aspects of Russian culture. And he's spoken about with, with great praise. So I don't know what to say. There are kind of two Peter III's, and it's going to probably take another 20 years of research to kind of weigh the relative merits of these two interpretations. So he had an art collection, he was a bibliophile, uh, he loved music, he was a patron of all of the arts, he had a respectable education, and so on. Uh, it's just hard to put these two bits together. He did, everyone agrees, uh, have, have a, you know, 
temper problems and he was rather immature and so on. But Catherine, one assumes the worst, perhaps, she is trying to justify her coup d'etat and the final assassination of her, son, her husband by painting him as a complete and utter incompetent. And she does rather well at it, actually, in this autobiography. So who's to know? I mean, there's kind of history for you. Um, so Peter III was assassinated in a coup d'etat, masterminded, of course, by Catherine and some of her close associates, who we'll talk about in a few moments. She, he was ignominiously buried. It was just an embarrassment. Catherine just wanted to get rid of him. He was kind of hidden away. And when Catherine herself died, her son, that is their son, theoretically, Paul I, decided it was time to resurrect his, the memory, essentially, of his father, who had been so brutally murdered when he was just eight years old. And so he had the body exhumed, and he had it brought from this cemetery, probably seven or eight kilometers by carriage, uh, to the grand burial place of the Romanovs, which is in the fortress of Peter and Paul in the center of the city. And this is it here in the image. Uh, what was particularly macabre about this is that Peter or Paul insisted that his father's murderers walk behind the catafalque. So there was a beautiful moment of real melodrama as uh, Peter III was finally buried in his rightful place. And this, of course, is Paul. Paul I, eventually you know, emperor, uh, the only theoretically legitimate child of Catherine and Peter. He was instantly taken from Catherine on the delivery bed, can you imagine, by the Empress Elizabeth. So Catherine gave birth, the child was basically stolen from her, and she had really very limited contact with him for six years. And I should say, there's this wonderful moment, she's lying on the bed, uh, she's unclean, and she's thirsty and hungry, and there's no one there. All they wanted was the child, and they ran off with it. And the child was raised by, by his grandmother, essentially. So there was not a lot of love established in the early years of relationship between mother and son. So at the age of six, they begin some kind of contact. Two years later, of course, his father is brutally murdered, and his mother ascends the throne. And he knows pretty well from the beginning that someone has stolen something from him. And he is the legitimate heir, and Catherine clearly is the illegitimate heir. She had no right to the throne whatsoever, right? She's German, no Russian blood. So he grew up a very angry young man. I should say, however, exceedingly well-educated. You can imagine, as a child of Catherine, Catherine the Great, he spoke five or six languages. He had studied all the sciences and history and literature and the arts and so on. A very distinguished mind. But he suffered, as many of these Romanovs did, from exceeding uh, temper, uncontrollable anger. And in a way, he had a lot to be angry about. And this anger grew until he came to the throne at the age of 42. And he had been, in a sense, dispossessed in those previous four decades. He had not been allowed any power, any access to government, and so on. And you think a little bit of Charles, don't you? I mean, but the anger just grew and grew, and he was full of vengeance. And watch out, you know, when somebody like that comes to the throne and has ultimately unlimited power. So Catherine and Paul 
um, were each other's worst enemies in a sense. Both threatened the other enormously. Catherine was never comfortable having him around uh, because, of course, he had greater legitimacy than, than she did. And, of course, he felt at any moment that he would be imprisoned and simply disowned somehow. And she worked very hard, this is so odd to me, uh, to spread rumors that he was illegitimate so that his power and power base would somehow be eroded. There's only one quote from Paul, by the way, that I've ever been able to find, and it's a little telling one. It says, I do nothing political. My role is to keep still. Right? So he had nothing, nothing to do. He was very, very lucky in marriage, actually. Wife number one died in childbirth. Obviously not so lucky. But wife number two, a German princess, was very attractive, had a very even-tempered personality, and was exceedingly talented as an artist. And here she is holding a drawing of their nine children. So they had a, a fairly happy family life. Can you see what she's holding here? She's very, very talented a painter, drawer, and particularly sculptor. And there's actually a work in the exhibition by her. And if you haven't seen it, I hope you'll check on it. So there she is, of course, with her husband here. Very happy marriage, and this is just one little quote I was able to find uh, by her. Her name is Marie, describing her husband, Paul. He is an angel, the pearl of husbands. I am perfectly happy. So somehow, out of this, you know, in this relatively hostile climate, she was able to establish a relatively normal kind of family life with these nine kids. Um, Paul, I should say, and the, both of them were very interested in the arts. They were sophisticated patrons, and one of the first uh, commissions, I think might be familiar to a few of you who were with me on that first lecture, this Temple of Gratitude, essentially. It was a way of thanking Catherine for the, the gift of an estate on the birth of their first child, who fortunately was a male, right? Uh, Grand Duke Alexander. So this is the first commission, essentially, by Paul and his wife, uh, Maria, and a very splendid piece of kind of Roman architecture it is. And then the two of them went on to use Catherine's favorite architect, a gentleman we talked about the last time, a Scotsman named Charles Cameron, to build themselves a private summer home, essentially, now called Pavlovsk. Still, you know, extant and very beautiful estate it is. And then when Paul uh, came to the throne, uh, he dismissed everyone who had worked for his mother. He did everything possible to make their lives miserable. There was a kind of a dramatic about-face in all government policies. And so this Scottish architect was fired, and not only was he fired, he lost his job, but he also lost his home. Paul made a point of booting him out of his, out of his rather attractive apartments in, in, this, in this area. But eventually Paul brought him back, and this Charles Cameron... I think, designed one of the most beautiful buildings in Russia, in a way. It's just a little temple to hold a statue of the Three Graces, which you see here. A very splendid kind of evocation of ancient Rome, which both Catherine and Paul and others were obsessed by, because it was such a, such a fad. Catherine gave Paul also a rather grandiose estate called Gachina, and Paul was very happy here because he could march his troops to his heart's uh, content. And he expanded uh, this palace, this rather splendid thing, with these two great wings to house these hundreds and hundreds of soldiers. And that gave him more pleasure than anything. He left his wife back at the little uh, villa there, Pavlovsk, and brought 
all of his troops here. Very happy for 13 years. It's at this location that Paul found out that he was going to accede to the throne. And I can just tell you a typical little moment, perhaps, in Paul's, well, typical in some senses. Um, a courtier arrived from St. Petersburg. Paul was of the state of mind that he would always expect the worst. And he would expect, I can tell you, jail or death. Even, you know, at the, at the uh, um, instigation of his own mother. But lo and behold, there he was shaking in his boots as this courier arrived, only to find out that, in fact, his mother had died, she hadn't changed her will, and he was emperor. Right? That's where it took place. Now, Paul was exceedingly paranoid, for very good reasons, I think. He, he was just a very, very angry man, and his policies were extremely conservative and very, very authoritarian. He wanted to control every tiny aspect of Russian life. And very quickly, you know, an opposition party kind of grew and, and led to his assassination. It happened in this building, which he built as a castle, moated, with only one intent, and that is to prevent such a violent occurrence. But it was a kind of inside job, and uh, it happened. He was strangled. He refused to abdicate. and. Um, he met his death in this building. He left, of course, a whole bunch of kids, right? And two of the boys are featured in the exhibition, the two oldest ones, Alexander and uh, Constantine. And just as Catherine's single son, Paul, had been stolen from her, so she stole her two oldest grandsons. So the minute these two boys were born, she took them from her parents and she raised them herself, and she was rather happy with them because they were everything you would ever want grandchildren to be. This is Catherine talking about Alexander, who's the little boy on the left. He's always happy, friendly, considerate, fearless, beautiful as love. He is the delight of everyone, especially myself. I can do what I like with him. This child loves me instinctively. In body, heart, and mind, he is exceptional in goodness and understanding. He's lively and sedate, prompt and reflective, with profound ideas and finds everything easy. He's tall and strong and agile, unaware of his good looks and so on. She's crazy about him and what a talented young man he is, just as is his younger brother, Constantine. I mean, they only spoke like five or six languages uh, at, these, at these early days, you know, and had very, very broad and enlightened kind of um, educations. Alexander, of course, went on to become emperor, the older brother, and transform St. Petersburg even, even into a greater and grander kind of imperial capital. This just gives you a little sense of what Alexander commissioned in the center of the city. And Alexander became, like all of the remaining emperors of Russia, exceedingly militaristic. That's something that he unfortunately inherited from his own father. And there we get a little bit of a sense of that kind of military angle. Catherine, again, sadly is remembered today to some degree as a sex goddess. You know how she wanted to be remembered as a, as a writer of laws. She was exceedingly intelligent, exceedingly well-educated. She was obsessed with notions of legislation. She knew that if she was going to bring prosperity to Russia, she must begin at the core of the issue, and that is governing effectively and according to law. And so she spent 18 months writing 526 articles of law. And here she is pointing at her law books. She's very, very proud of her brain. And this man also was very, very proud of, of Catherine's brain. That's Voltaire. This is friend number one. He was uh, 
he was somebody Catherine needed to know because she began her life somewhat covered in blood, wouldn't you say? She began her regime covered in those stains of her, of her husband's assassination. She needed the... Um, she needed accreditation, essentially, abroad, and no more important accreditation could come than from somebody like Voltaire, who was considered the most intelligent man of his age. There's no question. He had written all these great bestsellers. He had had a profound impact on how Europeans were thinking. He had revolutionized notions about religious toleration and how governments should govern and all ethics and, and morality issues and so on. Incredibly powerful and interesting, of course, man. She needed him desperately to legitimize her and, of course, he didn't mind having, the, you know, in a most powerful monarch, I suppose, in Europe, uh, fawning over him. So it was a little bit, I'm rubbing your back, you know, you're rubbing my back. The two got along rather well. Of course, they never met. So their friendship is one exclusively in the letters, right, and very rich they are. She was obsessed with this guy, and she ended up, have you seen these nine pictures upstairs? I mean, they're just a joke in a way of him almost going to the bathroom. You know, I mean, that's how detailed these sort of moments are in, in his daily life, and here he is clearly just getting dressed in the morning. Isn't this an embarrassing moment to, to have posterity remember you by? Catherine was obsessed, and she, she desperately needed him, and to such degree, she, of course, she wanted him to move to Russia, and she realized he wouldn't move to Russia unless she built him a house identical to the one that he had already near Geneva. So this is the model, which is in the exhibition, of course, um, of the house. Right, she said, if I build this house, you know, will you come? And, of course, he didn't really want to come at all. It wasn't enough. When he died, she, of course, wanted to own his library. And she just, you know, she's the cat with the mouse. And when she saw something she wanted, she clearly would never let go. She did buy the 6,801 volumes of Voltaire's library. And you can't possibly study Voltaire without going to Russia these days. And the library was housed in this rather grand space. She also wanted his body. She was desperate for his body. She, she felt they were kindred spirits, really, and uh, she was very saddened to find out that she couldn't have it. Okay, some of you may recognize this picture from my first lecture, and that is the Academy of Sciences, and it introduces us to friend number two, a woman, very unusual. This woman, the name is Princess Dashkova, is the first, and I believe, the only woman who's ever headed up an Academy of Sciences in the West, even till today. So she was a, one of the most distinguished kind of minds of her generation, and here she is here. And I just have to read you a minute of, of how she's described uh, by none other than uh, Diderot, the great French philosopher. She is by no means pretty, with a high and broad forehead and fat cheeks and rather deep-set eyes that are neither large nor small. She has a flat nose and a big mouth and thick lips and bad teeth and a convex bosom and no waist, and she's quick in her movements, and she has no elegance. And I mean, he didn't like the way she looked, obviously. <laughs> but, but, she turns out to have one of the great minds of her generation, and Catherine has a kind of hot, cold relationship with this woman because Dashkova was a, a teenager at the moment of the coup d'etat and claimed to have basically put Catherine on the throne. So... I can tell you, these are the, this is the memoirs, essentially, of Princess Dashkova. She might have had all the brains in the world, and she had a very distinguished kind of mind. Exceedingly unlikable. She's very, very conceited, and there isn't a page that doesn't kind of overflow with her pomposity and so on. But she made a huge contribution to the intellectual life of Russia in the 18th century, 
she was not only the president of the Academy of Sciences, and she made huge inroads, uh, she also was asked to head up a brand new Academy of Letters. And this is a text which is in the exhibition, which is essentially a companion lover's guide to Russian, right? And so it was uh, Princess Dashkova's responsibility to establish a team to write the first dictionary of Russian. And what a challenge that was, 40,000 words. So this woman was bright and focused and a doer. And she accomplished a huge amount for Catherine, even though they sometimes were friends and sometimes weren't. The next friend was, um, in a kind of way, a minister of culture. And this is the Academy of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg, one of the grandest buildings in the entire city. It gives you some sense of how important Catherine thought the arts were, the visual arts. This fellow was an illegitimate son of a prince. You know, the Russians have a tradition when they have illegitimate kids, and that is the aristocracy. They lop off the first syllable of the, of the last name and give the kid the rest of the syllables. So he was the son of Prince Trubetskoy, hence his name is Betskoy, right? Ivan Betskoy. He was a very, very close friend of Catherine's over decades, and he was a kind of minister of education and uh, minister of culture. And we can see some of the great things that he accomplished uh, in this print, which is in the exhibition. The first is that he actually oversaw the construction of the Academy of Fine Arts and established the curriculum. Secondly, he oversaw the entire... Uh, development of the, of the monument to Peter the Great, right, on horseback. And here's the rock. Everybody recognized now it was called the Thunderstone. He also, as, a as an illegitimate child himself, was particularly sensitive to notions of illegitimacy, and he was the first person to establish orphanages for illegitimate children in Russia, and they're here and here. And he was also responsible for establishing, and this is, I think, incredibly enlightened, free public and high schools in every town in Russia. I think that probably, I'm guessing, put Russia ahead of any other uh, country in Europe. So this guy was very together. Now, exhibit, exhibit B. Does anybody know the um, elegant garage sale on Bayview? Anybody heard of that? Well, I was there one day. Can anybody see that? <laughs> well, I was there one day, and I thought, you know what? I, that looks fairly familiar. I've been reading a lot about you know, Hermitage and looking through all the, sorry, up there. I thought I'd better buy that. It was $175, but I still thought I'd better buy it. And I brought it home, and of course, in about 30 seconds, I flipped to just the first book on the Hermitage, and there, there's that image, right, on like page six. And it is Betskoy. It is Ivan Betskoy. What is it doing in the elegant garage sale on Bayview? I don't know. Anyway, he's mine now. <laughs> Here's the, uh, the actual sculptor, Falcone, who created the bronze, uh, the bronze horseman, the bronze statue of uh, Peter. And Falcone and Betskoy were not a good team. Each one claimed authority over this commission, and they fought like cats and dogs over a period of 12 years, not very becoming to either of them. This, by the way, just to give you a sense of how serious Betskoy was about education, this is... The, these are the statutes for the orphanages. So it was very, very clear how enlightened, in a sense, uh, Betskoy's attitudes were to education. He felt the children should be loved and cared for and, and there should be no corporal punishment and so on. It's a very, very elaborate kind of treatise. He was very, very serious about education. Okay. Then a friend, unfortunately, I don't have a picture of him. His name was Galitsyn, and he's important because he was the uh, expert abroad 
who helped Catherine build the extraordinary collection, which is now the famous painting collection at the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. This guy, Galitsyn, was ambassador in Paris and then finally in The Hague. He was an ex extremely distinguished kind of mind. He knew a lot about the visual arts, and he acted as Catherine's agent abroad. And the first and unquestionably one of the most important paintings he brought personally to Russia was this extraordinary Rembrandt, one of the great works in the Hermitage, uh, The Prodigal Son, right, The Return of the Prodigal Son. This is Galitsyn who's brought this to Russia. And then Galitsyn was the one responsible for bringing the most important collection on the market in the entire 18th century to Catherine. And that was the Croza collection, as it was called. Pierre Croza was France's richest man. He was a minister of finance, so I guess it's not a surprise. He had this fabulous collection, you know, seven Van Dykes and seven Rembrandts and so on. This is not in the exhibition, but it was in our Rubens exhibition, if anybody remembers, right, four years ago a Van Dyck self-portrait. Also part of this Crozat collection was this work which is in the exhibition by Soublerha, not a particularly well-known French painter, and this one by Le Sueur. So just to give you a sample of what Crozat uh, grabbed in Paris, and this one too, and sent back to Russia. This is how Catherine essentially began to formulate one of the world's greatest collections ever in just 15 years. Uh, Galitsyn also commissioned works by contemporary artists. And just to give you a few examples, this is by a reasonably well-known French artist, certainly in his day, named Van Lu. Gives you some sense of what you know, French and sort of Russian culture must have looked like, certainly the high end uh, at the end of the 18th century. And this work by uh, really the hot artist, I would say, at the end of the 18th century, certainly in Catherine's mind, Frenchman named Grez. All of these were commissioned through this Galitsyn personality. The next friend is Stroganov. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> he was also one of these polyglots, extremely well-educated, educated abroad. He came from one of Russia's richest families. The fortune was based on salt. Um, but he had the time and the inclination to study, and he studied all the sciences and all the arts and what a brain and what a talent this guy had. He eventually became head of the Imperial Lapidary Works, that is the stone works, was responsible for, for example, such a beautiful object such as this in the exhibition. This is the Stroganov Palace, became a kind of center for the arts, a center for the enlightenment at the end of the 18th century, still there, fortunately. And just to give you an example, this work was in our Rubens exhibition. He owned it, and he, you know, he had bought it abroad, clearly. This work was in our Rubens exhibition. It also had belonged to Stroganov. He owned the great, uh, the largest, and certainly the, the most distinguished collection of old master paintings. And he had special rooms designed to house these collections. And you can see, uh, actually, there's one of the paintings I just pointed out, and here's another one here. Oh, sorry, there's one there, and there's one there. So. Oh, here's the fellow here. Right? He had an illegitimate son himself who turned out to be an extraordinarily talented architect. Here he is over here doing this watercolor. And, uh, of course, his son designed this room, very beautiful room that's now under restoration. Stroganov also supported uh, living artists, and when the French artists escaped the revolution and came to Russia, uh, he did everything possible to make them feel at home. And this rather stunning portrait at the end of the exhibition is by one of these French emigres whose name was Madame Vigée de Brun. And 
Stroganoff did everything possible to introduce her to the right people. Sadly, her works were despised by Catherine the Great, so Stroganoff could not rely on the Empress to support Catherine. This, by the way, is the granddaughter-in-law of Catherine, rather stunning portrait. There is Stroganoff himself. He became head, uh, you know, director of the Academy of Fine Arts himself for a 10-year period. He's holding a plan of it there. And he spent his enormous fortune and the last 10 years of his life essentially building one of St. Peter's grandest churches. There you see there, essentially from private funds. Very splendid thing. Lovers. There are five of them I'm going to talk about. Uh, there are 12 in total, right? Uh, they're all identifiable. There weren't others. Catherine said she wasn't promiscuous, and she wasn't. Uh, they, you know, they came one at a time. And she always felt this one was going to be the last one. She always was hoping this one would be the last one. And it, of course, never came to pass. This was lover number one. He was kind of almost hired, I think, by the Empress Elizabeth to help Catherine produce an heir. His name was Saltikoff. He came from an ancient noble family. But he was a vain, very empty kind of character. And he dumped Catherine uh, almost instantly. So no one knows. Saltikoff, the father of the heir, or was Peter III? Nobody knows. Maybe DNA will help us someday. Catherine, the only quote I can remember, she said he was as handsome as the dawn. Of course, she had never, never been in love before. She was a virgin. Right? She'd waited seven years, and she was desperate, I think. And, and uh, he, was, he was an attractive guy, at least on the outside. Lover, really number three, is Grigory Orloff. And he came to dominate Catherine's life for about 10 years. He was incredibly handsome. I mean, these, this is consistent reporting. Everybody says it. He was a huge man, kind of bear of a pair of a guy, incredibly kind, incredibly friendly, uh, uh, very ambitious. Uh, he had four brothers. All five of them were strategically located in the army. And when I said before that her private and public lives were intertwined, Catherine, in my mind, would not have acceded to the throne. There would have been no successful coup d'etat if she hadn't been sleeping with this man because he brought with him these four brothers with their outstanding connections in the army, right, in St. Petersburg. And it was those five men, essentially, who made the coup d'etat the success that it was. He, he was not an intellectual, but Catherine does describe him as somebody she would have been very happy with forever. Unfortunately, he began to, you know, drift away and took interest in other women, and Catherine was not in the slightest bit amused by that. This is the palace, just one, that Catherine had built for him. It was called the Marble Palace because it was built out of a material that had never been used really for construction in St. Petersburg, which is basically brick and stucco, marble, of course, from the newly explored uh, region of the Ural Mountains and Siberia. It was all pioneering kind of land out there. And he was an art collector of some sort. There's a couple of paintings just by way of example to show you what he would have adorned his house with. And the two of them had a son, and here he is, Alexei Bobritsky, his name was, and this is a work commissioned by Catherine on the little boy's seventh birthday. Um, he was a bit of a wastrel in a way. I mean, he was a kind of good-for-nothing kind of kid initially. I mean, no one, I mean, he didn't know who his parents were. He was raised by a valet, and then actually Betskoy raised him for a while. And, and then he went on a tirade, and he went to Europe, and he, he just... He just went crazy with money, and he incurred these terrible debts and so on. He was a bit of a pain, I think, for Catherine for quite a while. And then he quietly kind of disappeared onto a farm and became a farmer. So that was 
you know, child number actually three. There was a, a little girl in the midst of it all, and she died as, as a two-year-old. An important lover in the middle of Catherine's reign was this gentleman named Lanskoy. He was, I believe, around 20. Catherine was 51. Right? He was exceedingly attractive, as I guess you might expect. But more importantly, in a way, or as importantly, he was an angel. She talks about him as an angel. And he was, in every way, the loveliest young man, eager to learn. And she saw him, in a way, as a pupil and as a son. They just, you know, happened to sleep together. But they shared incredible interests of art and architecture and literature. And she believed that he would be her consolation in her old age. Just a sample of what he owned. This is uh, his Rembrandt, one of his many Rembrandts. It happens to be Minerva. There's a kind of, kind of interesting subplot running through this entire exhibition. And another one of his Rembrandts. Uh, he became very keen rather quickly. You have to remember he's only like 22, 23 at this point. Their, their real passion was for cameos and intaglios, which we now call gemstones, these antique uh, little historical bits. And, and this is what they really shared, and they collected over, over a period of time 44,000 of them, right? And I think some of you have seen these upstairs in the exhibition, and then they commissioned these superb pieces of furniture with hundreds of door, drawers, to, obviously, to to hold them all. Um, sadly, he only lived till the age of 26. And in the space of one week, he died of scarlet fever or diphtheria. No one's quite sure. Catherine was devastated. And of course, when the Empress goes to bed for three weeks to cry, the entire mechanism of the Russian government grinds to a halt. Right? That's how centralized, of course, power is. So, her, his death had a huge impact, in a way, on the empire for a period of time. I only show this because we looked at this the last time together. This is one of Catherine's a, a bathing pavilions in the Roman style. And this floor uh, was taken from Lanskoy's palace when he died, partly because I guess Catherine al already owned it, partly for sentimental reasons. So she had it shipped from St. Petersburg out to this summer palace. Major lover, we can't avoid, Gregory Potemkin, he was a genius. He co-ruled with Catherine for almost 20 years, and there was no man like him in 18th century Europe, period. Now, when Catherine... Um, sorry, just let me find bits here. I want to start, in a way, with, with, his, with his death, because it's, it's very telling, in a, in a way. Um, Potemkin spent a lot of his energies conquering that great swath of land in the south, which would give Russia access to the sea, to the Black Sea and ultimately the Mediterranean. And he raced back and forth between the Black Sea and St. Petersburg all the time. It was only a thousand miles. And remember, he's on horseback. And he, he did it in a week. It was, he was superhuman. He was absolutely superhuman. Sadly, October the 12th, 1791, Catherine was greeted by a, a messenger, and this was the message. Uh, Your Most Gracious Majesty, we have been struck a blow. His Highness Prince Grigory Alexandrovich is no longer among the living. So this was the news that Catherine had been dreading her whole life, essentially, because this man had been her primary support. He had been, to a very large degree, the, the brains behind some of the extraordinary innovations and the kind of revolution, essentially, in Russian culture and life over the preceding 15 years. Let me just read you her 
account of how she feels when, when she gets this terrible news. A terrible crushing blow struck me yesterday. After dinner, around six in the evening, a courier brought me the mournful news that my pupil, my friend, one might say my idol, Prince Potemkin, has died. You have no idea of the extent of my affliction. He combined a sublime understanding and an unusually expansive spirit with a superior heart. His ideas were always grand and lofty. He was extraordinarily benevolent, very knowledgeable, and uniquely kind. New ideas were forever taking shape in his head. No one ever had such a gift for witticism or for saying just the right thing. He displayed staggering military talent in this war. Not once did he make a mistake, be it on land or sea. No one could lead him, but he had a rare talent to lead others. In a word, he was a man of state who could both advise and execute. He was passionately, fervently devoted to me. He would quarrel and become angry when he felt matters had not been carried out as they ought. He had, however, yet another rare quality that distinguished him from all other men. Bravery filled, him, filled not only his heart, but his mind and his soul as well. As a result, we always understood each other and did not pay any attention to the talk of those whose thoughts did not measure up to ours. In my opinion, Potemkin was a great man who, was, who did not carry out even half of what he was capable of. Every burden now falls upon me. Be so good as to pray for me. So she fell apart, essentially, and there was no one to kind of pull her back together again, and I don't think she ever recovered from his death. They had had a two-year intense, impassioned affair. And a fabulous new uh, a book has just been published of, of their letters. Again, they're not um, uh, Gregor Potemkin's letters, which she burnt. They're Catherine's letters, which he kept. So they had this impassioned affair, and I think they completely burnt each other out. They just couldn't keep going. It was so intense. And they, the two of them kind of decided to, uh, well, they got married, they think. I think they got married, and then the two of them decided they would take lovers on the side. But he quickly became the co-ruler of Russia, and he's shown in all this kind of military garb because he did conquer the south. He expanded Russia by about 8 million square miles, again, as if it wasn't large enough. This, of course, is his throne, which is in the exhibition, and it's appropriate that it's called a throne because they were kind of co-rulers, although, of course... Uh, she made sure that the helmet of Minerva, who was her alter ego, was placed above him right, when he sat in this chair. So it was very clear who ultimately had the power. And just to remind you here, uh, St. Petersburg is up here. I mean, do you get a sense of this big country? It's like only two or three si times the size of Canada. And, and here's the Black Sea over sea. This whole region down here he was responsible for conquering. Right? Now, you've probably heard of this notion of the Potemkin village. Catherine had rumors that, that uh, nothing was really happening in the south in these new conquered lands. And in order to prove that something was happening, uh, Potemkin decided to take her to the south and to take some important eyewitnesses, essentially the ambassadors from Austria and you know, France and England and so on. So this is her garb for this special trip that they took to the south in order for Potemkin to prove that what he had been working at, pardon me, keeping so busy at, had actually come to fruition. And that is he had peopled a new land a vast new land, essentially, and he had established brand new cities out of nowhere. And they are, you know, cities like Sebastopol and Odessa and so on. They're all there, and it would be so interesting to see them today because he left a huge mark on the south. And this notion of the Potemkin village, anybody, have, raise your hand if you've heard of that concept. 
yeah, was always a, a castigation against Potemkin. Essentially, it was this idea that, oh, well, when they went down the river, he just had cardboard cutouts essentially following the barges. And he had, you know, 10 well-dressed peasants race along, and they would, you know, keep reappearing all the way through the trip. Um, this was invented instantly because people, men essentially, were so jealous of Potemkin's extraordinary energies, ideas, vision, power, and so on. And of course, it wasn't true at all. But it's it's what has stuck to Potemkin, even with Russians. And I've had people come up to me, you know, during the run of this exhibition, to say, "Well, I've I've heard all about this Potemkin village thing. It has been completely discredited, fortunately, in the last couple of years with a new biography of Potemkin." So he built in the south. And uh, just to give you a sense, I mean, I don't know whether you can see, but there's a rather spectacular palace built here. Where does it say? It's in Curzon. It's a city that I'd not heard of, but it still exists in the south, and there must be some very grand neoclassical buildings he wanted to build again in the antique Roman style. These are all buildings that he built, right? So you get a sense of the grandeur of some of them here. Uh, so the whole south was populated. This trip was a triumph, really, for, for Catherine and Potemkin. This just gives you a little sense of the ballroom, you know, in his palace. Some of us, again, looked at this in the first lecture. It only held 5,000 people. There was this really great party uh, in 1791. It was the great party probably of, of all time in St. Petersburg, and it was the last moment in which Catherine and Potemkin saw each other, and there was this very touching moment in which he knelt and thanked her with tears streaming down his face for all the opportunity, essentially, that she had given him to exercise his, his great ideas. And of course, she was overwhelmed herself with emotion because he had carried so much of the burden and had brought, honestly, such glory um, to the Russian Empire. And it's where they did see each other for the last time. Of course, she gave him many beautiful gifts. There's an example of this up in the exhibition, one of these great pieces of Sevres uh, porcelain called, from the cameo service. You know, you can see the little bits of cameo uh, here and here and here. And he was a collector, too. I mean, he did everything. I think I've, I've told some of you, um, he's, he wrote at one point, um, well, there's a, there's a composer in Vienna. I really like to hire him. And later on, it says, oh, his name's Mozart, by the way. You know, he just wanted everything the best. He, he was so astute. He, he spoke like seven languages, including Latin and Greek, completely fluently. And Catherine knew he was much more intelligent in a way than she was, and she was very proud of her own brain. Uh, he was lucky. He had total recall. Total recall. Can you imagine? These are just an example of some of the works that the two of them bought. And this one, I think, must have had some. Everyone seen this in the exhibition, by the way? This is by an artist who isn't really well-known today. Uh, his name is Mengs, for what it's worth. But Catherine thought he was the hottest thing, absolutely the hottest. And she was desperate to own a work by this man. And this is a perfect example. And I do think that many of the works that Catherine purchased uh, did have some kind of personal meaning. And this is a Roman, Roman myth. And it, uh, it's about uh, Perseus on the right, of course, the beautiful, young, intelligent young man. Um, and he spies a woman, you know, tied to a rock and is about to be eaten by that sea monster who you see in the left-hand corner named uh, Andromeda. And of course, he dashes down and he rescues her and they fall in love and et cetera, et cetera. I can't help but imagine that the two of them wouldn't have seen this as a sly kind of private joke because, of course, Potemkin, to a very significant degree, did arrive, did see a kind of damsel in distress, Catherine herself, and rescue her, right? So I think there were kind of personal associations that they had with these paintings which we have yet to fully really uncover. Now, I should say the 12 lovers end not with a bang, but a whimper. Potemkin was nervous about surviving Catherine because he knew that Catherine's son, Paul, 
would seek vengeance on him, I think. And so uh, Potemkin was very crafty, and he began buying very large estates outside of Russia, essentially in Poland, which was next door. And I think he had this plan to slip away if the moment ever came. But in fact, Potemkin died five years before Catherine and left her, of course, bereft and left her alone. Can you imagine carrying the burden of this Russian government all by yourself, essentially? Anyway, it left her extremely vulnerable to the next guy. And the next guy was this character named Platon Zuboff. He was 21 or 22, and she was now 61. So it, it became something of an embarrassment, obviously, to Catherine's family, uh, to the court, to Russia, and clearly in Europe. Right? She became the subject of much ridicule, sadly. <clears throat> Again, vain, kind of empty-headed character who simply wanted, you know, crude form of power. None of the brains, of course, uh, that Potemkin had. And it, it was a kind of sad moment, in a way, uh, for Catherine. <clears throat> he did play a critical role, <clears throat> pardon me, in the next reign. He was one of the co-conspirators who assassinated Catherine's son, Paul. So he kind of came back to haunt uh, the next generation. And there we are, a kind of rush through her love life. Um, you can see she's smiling, right? She had a lot to be very happy about. She had a very, very full life. She was a workaholic. She was a visionary. She saw so many of her ideas come to fruition and um, led a very full 34 years on that Russian throne. Anyway, if you haven't seen the show, I encourage you as soon as possible to enjoy it. It will be crazy over the Christmas holidays. Don't ever imagine seeing it then. Right? Over the next month would be perfect. Anyway, thank you for coming. Yeah.